0: You ask for all of us, all of our hearts, all of our being, we lay before you. God, as difficult as that is, sometimes we ask that you give us the grace, give us the courage to go ahead and to fully give ourselves over to you. Our, our understanding, even of your words, hand it over, take and seal it. In your name we pray, amen. I think that... Uh, If you were to just like pull people in across the, you know, around the street and say, hey, um, come on in here, just a quick question, quick poll. And if you got enough people uh, and enough responses to the simple question, what does the Bible say about money? There's a good chance that uh, I think the most common response that you're going to say is after thinking about it for a little while, um, I'm pretty sure the Bible says that money is the root of all evil. Let's just say it again so that we kind of get the, the flow of this, the, the exact wording. Money is the root of all evil. It kind of said another way you could say, you know, everything bad in this world, everything just destructive, everything ruinous, everything bad comes from the contents of our wallets. I think that's a popular impression that we have of uh, of how we relate of, of money in the world of how what we think maybe or the majority of uh, what the Bible says about money. And I think it's a I think it's a totally understandable belief to have uh, for three reasons. First of all, I think the culture. Uh, tells it to us. Not just like the major media culture at large, but I think the little, like the subculture of Christianity tells us that everything bad in the world comes from the contents of our wallets, that money is the root of all evil. And I think that because you can go through a bookstore, uh, a Christian bookstore, and kind of go through the the Christian living section of a bookstore, and you start to come across uh, a theme of a number of books. Uh, It's kind of the older classic ones is uh, Ron Sider's Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger, other ones, uh, Crazy Love by Francis Chan, we've got Satisfied by Jeff Mandy, and of course very recently is Jen Hetmaker's book seven, subtitled An Experimental Mutiny Against Excess. I love her uh, this overstated sense of things. And I've got nothing uh, against any of these titles. A lot of the content for this message, in fact, comes from some of those that, that I just uh, listed up. The problem is, walking down the Christian living aisle in the subculture of Christianity, it, you start to get the like bombarded sense that money is the root of all evil. That taking these, not just one at a time, but all of them in at the same time, you start to, to get the sense that maybe... Maybe everything bad in this world is a result of the contents in my wallet. Maybe that's the problem. And if taking all of these in, not just one at a time again, but all at once, we can start to see that maybe the solution is to empty all of it. Is to just like step back, to remove ourselves from the equation entirely and say, hey, everything that I have, I'm going to give it up. I'm going to give it over. Because obviously... Having anything and following Christ is not, is not compatible at all. So uh, why do we think money is the root of all evil? I think, for, first of all, like the Christian subculture can tend to give us that message. And I wouldn't blame you if you think about it because uh, the lifestyle of the Apostle Paul, who, uh, who either wrote or uh, is the subject of about half of the New Testament books, his lifestyle seems to suggest it. Here's a, here's a guy who would go around from city to city, town to town, uh, village to village, uh, preaching Jesus, uh, crucified and resurrected. And he'd just go, all, leaving a trail of new churches kind of in his wake. And what did he have to do all of this on? Nothing. Nothing. <laughs> He's a guy who would live on the generosity of others. I mean, if he was going to have a place to stay, some clothes, if he was going to have anything to eat, it would be because somebody gave him that to eat or to wear or to sleep under. If he absolutely had to, he was uh, no stranger to a little hard work going outside the city gate and uh, sewing tents together, making a little money. Though you get the impression that as soon as he has enough to like, get to the next city or to fill his stomach enough to go to the temple or the synagogue to tell people about Jesus, he would drop it in a heartbeat to take up that message, that cause. I think the Christian subculture tells us that money is the root of all evil. I think the lifestyle of Paul tells us that money is all evil. I think that the biblical culture, the ancient uh, Near Eastern culture in which the Bible is set tends to give us that message. There's a fascinating little book called uh, uh, Misreading Scripture with Western Eyes. It just talks about the different ways that uh, we in the West have have a particular way of looking at life, at the Bible even, and about how it's sort of colored by our experiences that we, we can't escape out of. And how Eastern cultures, particularly ancient cultures, they may have looked at something completely different. So he takes the uh, example of, uh, of psalms, of biblical poetry, and he says, you know, the thing about uh, biblical poetry is that there's so many of these lines that uh, he calls it uh, technical synthetic uh, parallelism, which I know everybody's totally going to remember. But He says, in the biblical poetry, you say the same thing, just different ways. So the the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Isn't that what a shepherd does? Yeah, exactly. So we're just saying it and then re-saying it and then re-saying it. He talks about uh, Psalm 52, verse 7, and he says, uh, he stores up and puts his trust in great wealth. He builds himself up by destroying others. And in Western eyes, the author here, Randy Richards, points out is to say, hey, you know what? That seems like two different things, doesn't it? Uh, There's number one, he puts his hope and his trust in great wealth. Uh, That's one way he goes wrong. And in another way he goes wrong is by uh, building himself up by taking from others. And Richards goes, no, 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 in biblical cultures, those are not different things. That is saying the same thing just one more time. We have a view of money or finances that maybe the pie is, is infinite, that if you have more, it's not at the expense of me, you just have more. I might think that you can you should share it a little more often, but I might be jealous of your more a little more, but no, 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 uh, what you have isn't the direct result of my loss. In biblical culture, it was. He says it was viewed that way. So the person who has great wealth has it, not he has great wealth, and He takes from others, but he has great wealth because he took it from others. Uh, Ancient biblical culture says money is the root of all evil. The lifestyle of Paul seems to suggest money is the root of all evils. The Christian subculture that we live in tends to give us the message that everything bad in this world happens as a result of the contents of our wallets. Problem is, That's not in the Bible. (laughs) There's a phrase that's very, very close to that that we're going to get to in just a minute, but that phrase, money and the root of all evil, is not in the Bible. It's uh, the next installment of our series, if you're just joining us, called the Misused Bible, and it's just all the different ways that we can uh, go wrong in thinking we know what the Bible says because we've just heard a verse or a passage so many times, and the difference between that and what it actually says. Uh, in the church calendar year, we're in a season of Lent. It's the time of uh, reflecting on our, our own mortality and on the time of our own sins leading up to a Good Friday, Jesus dying on the cross, and of course his resurrection on Easter Sunday. As a, a tradition that a lot of people have to maybe give up something during the season of Lent or take something on during the season of Lent. You like, uh, give up in thinking about all the different ways that, that Christ gave up himself for us, take on in the same way that Christ took on the cross or took on um, our sins in order to save us. Uh, if you're still kind of, a, hey, we're a couple weeks into this season, uh, looking for something to maybe give up or take on, I just in the context of this series, maybe consider uh, giving up giving up your own understanding of popular passages. You know, you may have something written a thousand times in your Bible or in a journal somewhere. Something that we've heard last week, cards with four I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Maybe hundreds of them. I just encourage you during this season of Lent to, to give up whatever we think the Bible says and take on what it actually says. In the context of money is the root of all evil, Give up for a second the thought that everything bad in this world happens as a result of the content of our wallet. Take on what the Bible actually says. And as we learned uh, last week, uh, we've learned to to read the context around the verses, not just the exact verse, but kind of above and after. So I invite you to join with me as we uh, read 1 Timothy 6, uh, 6 through 10 on the screen behind me and on the the front of the flow sheets as well. And I just want to tell you, this is Paul writing to uh, a young apprentice, Timothy, in a church that Paul started and spent years at in the city of Ephesus. And he says to Timothy, listen. Godliness with contentment is great gain for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it but if we have food and clothing we will be content with that those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction and here's our line and if we could if we could just read it all uh, together the next sentence for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Uh, thank you for uh, indulging me and reading that line altogether because you could hear the difference, can't you? It's subtle, I think. Money isn't the root of all evil. As Paul says it in First Timothy, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. I want you to know something about the city in which he's writing to. The person, Timothy, but also the context. He's no stranger to the place. This is not a letter written into a, to a vacuum, just kind of somewhere out there. Now, he spent months in the city of Ephesus. Before he decided, he felt called to, to head to Jerusalem, which is quite a ways away for some time. And then he came back to Ephesus, and he stayed for, it says, like two and a half years, at least. He may have stayed longer, we don't know. But so I'm just thinking, this is a place uh, in the globe that Paul, known for not staying in the same place for very long, has spent at least three years, I'm thinking, putting down roots, maybe longer. Having conversations, getting to know people, hearing stories. Know something about the city of Ephesus itself. You know, you think about uh, um, ancient biblical cities as a one-horse town with a stop sign amidst the backdrop of Cacti. <laughs> no, no, no. Ephesus is something like fourth largest city in the Roman world. Uh, it's got a, a, like an inlet. It makes a perfect uh, harbor, all naturally occurring. So it's a beautiful place to be a, like, say, a shipping center. So uh, I'm thinking fourth largest uh, city in the world, shipping center. Uh, it's not one-horse town with cacti in the background. I'm thinking uh, New Orleans, maybe, the city of Miami. Something that ships are just coming and going all the time. It puts Ephesus on a map uh, in a big way. I imagine uh, shipping containers or just cargo freight coming in and containers being unloaded off from these ships, just like one, two, three at a time coming in. And as the shipping containers are, are opened up and there's product from around the world that is flooding into the streets of Ephesus, it was good for the people. <laughs> they liked it at least. I mean, you just imagine these people in Ephesus keeping a lot of it for themselves, selling a lot of it at a great markup because they had access to something that very few people in the ancient Near Eastern world had access to. And so as the city of Ephesus starts to grow, the people in Ephesus start to get richer and richer and richer. A social ladder develops there, especially, where people are starting to look down and then look up. Paul sees something. I think he notices in the relationships that he's built in Ephesus. I think he he noticed that that some people, particularly in the Jesus movement, and they were no strangers to wealth, as they started accumulating more and more, as they started having uh, plenty, (laughs) just having more than enough, uh, goods, products, things to wear, things to eat. I think he notices that that it changed them. Something happened. You know, as some people develop more and more and more, it didn't change them. They were the same person. You know, it's like they still came to the meetings in, in so-and-so's house. They still gave generously, even more generously because they started having more. They, they kept the same friends, they wore similar clothes, they just had access to just abundantly more resources. It didn't change them. And I think from other people he looked around and he saw, it did change them. As they as they moved from want, having not enough, or at least desiring more and more and more, to actually getting that. Some people didn't change at all, and some people changed dramatically. And I think this is what makes Paul reflect on this in his words and says, "You know what it's not money is the root of all evil. Everything bad in the world doesn't happen as a result of the contents of a wallet so much bad in this world happens as a result of the contents of our hearts. It's not money is the root of all evil. It's that the love of money has a way of just changing everything. It's like a neutral amplifier, some people call it, to just say it's just gotten rampant and out of control. And so much evil, as Steve calls it here, so much griefs in this world are a direct result of not money, not the neutral amplifier, but just how we in our hearts relate to that money. He sees some people and it just doesn't change them. And he sees some people and it changes everything. So it's not the money's fault, it's, it's somehow what's going on in our hearts that makes all the difference in the world. And he wants to warn you, Timothy, Warn Timothy to warn the church. I've been around enough. I've seen it happen enough. It is it's just so destructive as you move from want up the ladder into plenty. And it just hurts so badly. Listen to how he describes it in Timothy in the verse that we just got done reading. In verse 9 he says, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge. I'm thinking like plunge up from a diving board in the deep end of a pool and you can't swim. I think that's the sense that he's getting across here. Just like I'm drowning here. An expression that we even use still today. Some people are eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many graves, pierced—I think a knife just going in and pulled out, and others just bleeding out. He says this concept of coming into plenty is just so destructive to some people's hearts because of how they relate to it, and, and the images that we use is a is trap, drowning, and pierced, or just bleeding. Guy comes home, uh, tells his wife, uh, there's a good chance, I don't want you to be concerned about anything, but I just want you to know for your own and my peace of mind, there's a good chance that in the last year or so, we've just been systematically overreaching in our budget. You know, we've just overextended ourselves one way or another. And it's, it's not a critical, it's not a desperate situation at all, but we have to get on the same page and scale it back just somewhat. And they say, well, where's the first place that we can go? Well, we, we've kind of gotten used to a lifestyle of not being around here, around home, just eating out a lot. And so when you count lunches and dinners, and I'm, I'm looking at the bank of the charge cart and going, it's five, six, seven times uh, a, a week each. And so I, probably a good place to start is to say, let's just eat our meals at home, brown bag it to the office, do the peanut butter and jelly thing. You know, not a big deal, and that's kind of, we'll make up the difference. In a few more months, I'm going to feel a lot better about the situation, and we can move on. The couple's now brown bagging it, peanut butter and jelly thing, staying at home, and something weird happens. You know, there's this bizarre phenomena of one's experiencing plenty, and how easy it was to get here and how so desperately hard it is to go over to the want side again. It's a weird thing to, to, to be at home and to be brown bagging it again and to be having dinners uh, at home, homemade meals. And it's like, we did this so much before we experienced plenty, we're just doing it again. No, 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 we're not just doing it again. Things have changed from there to here. Suddenly I'm not just uh, having dinner at home again I'm trapped at home again. <laughs> in this house, right? Oh, Buy the nicest one you can afford, he said. A house is an investment, she said. You'll grow into it, they said. Now I'm, I'm trapped at home in a house I'm drowning in the toll of the relationship, the toll of this dynamic of moving from plenty to want, even for a little while. It is not measured in dollars or dinners or experiences. No, the toll is measured on the relationship that it takes. You know, this is just the frustration, the animosity, the the butting heads. The toll that it takes relationally on a a couple, on the parents and kids, on parents and their parents, on the friendships around them, on the coworkers. Listen, the toll that it takes is so desperate that not only is it trapped, uh, drowning, it's like your relationship is lying on the floor, pierced and bleeding out. And so Paul warns Timothy to warn the people, the church, I don't, I don't want that for you. So please, Timothy, please encourage them. In verse 6, godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. If we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. contentment. Is the remedy that Paul urges for Timothy to urge to them? Contentment, by the way, neither want nor plenty. The the books might suggest in the Christian subculture is that the remedy to to finding contentment is to maybe just like give up everything. You know, if you start giving away more of what you have, then then you'll start to, to be more content as you slide further and further down. And I think there's some truth to that. There's probably a a spiritual practice that you can employ, particularly during this time of Lent, of giving up, to say maybe that would help. But I think what Paul's saying, no, as a rule, there might be some good practices or some less helpful practices to to find contentment, but he's saying, you want to know where contentment can be found? What is the, the minimum threshold, the kind of the range between plenty and want of contentment being found? Food and clothing, and we can be content for that. You don't, have to, you don't have to go far down the line of want before you find contentment. He's writing to rich Christians in Ephesus only a few lines later. He goes, oh, by the way, those of you who have a lot, which is probably everybody in the room, here's some instructions. You know, don't be arrogant, be generous, don't put your, put your hope in it but you can find contentment wherever you are. Contentment isn't there at plenty. Contentment isn't just one more. And by the way, these go infinitely in either direction. You've got to find contentment in any place you are. Because I tell you what, wherever you go, this is going to be profound, wherever you go, there you are. Have, you have a way of taking yourself with you, don't you? So if you're not content with one model, there's, there's a good chance that you're not going to be content with the next model. Because if the, the, the Bible is true, and I think that it is, I think it's going to tell you that deep satisfaction, deep happiness, deep contentment is not found in one thing that's bigger, one thing that's nicer, one vacation that's further away. It's, just, it's simply irrelevant. Because all the bad stuff, all the grief in the world, all the, the trapped, drowned, and bleeding situations in the world, is totally irrelevant simply a, a neutral amplifier of the state of our hearts. It's not about the contents of the wall. It's the state of the heart. All right, contentment. You know, here's a challenge. Find contentment wherever you are this week. Be fully present in whatever job that you have this week and whatever tasks are ahead of you. Gee whiz. I, you know, if only there was some other place in the Bible, preferably by the same author, so we don't get confused with our thoughts here, by Paul in an epistle with the same genre of Scripture, that we could go to hear maybe some tips or some insights on this concept of plenty and want and the contentment that lies somewhere in the middle. Thank you for asking. Philippians chapter uh, chapter 4, verse 12. And he says, I've learned the secret of being content in every and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Plenty or in want. And what, kicks me, what kills me is that he's in prison <laughs> when he says this. If there was ever a time to talk about contentment, I, I would think it would not be in prison. Nevertheless, Two words that I just love, I've taken it into my week, I hope that you will too. The two words that he uses are learned and secret to describe contentment. You know, it's not just this God-given gene that some people have. It's just a happy person and other people just aren't. No, contentment is learned and it's a secret. I don't think it's a secret in the sense of hidden in a cave underwater somewhere far away. I think it's a secret in a sense that, listen, it's just not obvious. It's not like the go-to and it's definitely not going to be something that I'm going to say, "Hey, by the way, the secret this week." And you're going to go, "Oh, I wish somebody would have totally explained it to me earlier." And it' take it, no, I think it's not going to be obvious, and it's going to take a while to learn and relearn and learn one more time. To uh, give us some helpful tips or some advice on this, uh, author Tim Keller um, just gives us a few, and he goes, uh, "Diagnosing the love of money." You know, if you're kind of sitting in a chair right now and you're going. I understand somehow, some, at some level, that my own, you know, the, the evil, the bad stuff in the world is not uh, the result of the contents of my wallet, but the contents of my heart. I just question, how do I know if I have a problem with the contents of my heart? Kind of clearing the way to get to contentment. Uh, first of all, the author Tim Keller says, and I love how you know, he puts it: uh, "Is the tail wagging the dog or the dog wagging the tail? You know, we have these God-given desires, wants, We desire to see his kingdom being built here on earth. And so sometimes we we just see like glimpse of that. We see not even spiritual as we usually think of it, sense of things, but we see sometimes something functioning like as it should function. We go that right there is kind of a, a snapshot of what the kingdom is finally going to look like when Jesus comes back. This desire is inside of us. And so that is not going to go away. The problem though is this the desire for not just the ultimate way down the line, but it's the desire for just one step up on the wrong? Wagging the dog? Controlling you? Or are you controlling it? And the other one is, where does, where does your bubble burst, he says? Or where do things go really wrong? If you one step down towards the, the want side of things, and is it like life just comes crashing down. Like, that is it. You know, I'm never going to be over there. And I'm realizing it now, and it just hurts so bad. There's a good chance that, that even though you, you're in the want side of things, that you still struggle with this love of money, the contents of your heart. And the other one is getting over here finally getting there and achieving? And is there some sense of, some sense of depression or struggle or just despondency that says, I'm here now and contentment is still evading me? This wasn't the answer. You know, where does the bubble burst? If it's dependent on where you are, I think Paul would say, "Listen, contentment can be found anywhere in between. It's not moving up or down." And then the idea of learning the secret. He says, "Just a few tips, just uh, something to meditate on, something to take in with your week." Uh, first of all, first of all, it, it might be helpful to name it, to name the plenty especially, to call it for what it is. The 10th commandment in the Old Testament, you know, on the, the carved in stones, is uh, thou shalt not covet. That's saying negatively what Paul just says positively. I've learned the secret to contentment. No, no. Um, I've learned to be content in any situation. No, no. Thou shalt not covet is the, uh, is the inverse or the opposite of that. So, just name it for what it is. Listen, wanting to be here and thinking that this is somehow going to to lead to what's ultimate in this life, that's called idolatry. Uh, Putting something else, uh, a new model, a new vacation, a new whatever, in the place of what's ultimate in God's place is called an idol. Just simply, first of all, to learn contentment, name it, call it what it is. Second of all, and I love, he calls it the icing diet. Uh, He goes, I love icing on top of cake, right? I know it's winter and everybody's like, no, I'm totally done with ice, but uh, the frosting kind of diet. The thing about frosting is it's delicious and we all love frosting. And so when you experience plenty or just maybe something in life that feels like plenty, you just say, you know what? Thank you, God, for the icing. Thank you, God, for the frosting. It tastes good going down, but when it goes away and we move back into the want section, we can look back and say, you know, it it was just icing. It was just frosting, There's just something good on top of the cake. God is my protein. God is my sustenance, my meal. He's what's going to keep me going today, tomorrow, and the next day. And the last one is the verse that follows this one. I can do all all this through him who gives me strength. No show of hands, but I just wonder how many people have heard that passage before? Don't raise your hands. Or how many bought a t-shirt with that passage on? And how many people knew that that passage was talking about contentment? To wrap it up, this is like a double feature of the misused Bible. When he says, I can do anything, I can do all of this through Christ who strengthens me. He's talking about finding contentment. If you leave with with just something so small this week, If you go out with anything, I plead with you to go out with this. Meditate on the cross. Look at the cross of Jesus Christ, particularly now, crucified for contentment. Because something happens. I mean, call it perspective. I call it like realigning of God's intention for your life. Call it calling or just a divine revelation. But I, I promise you, that meditating on the cross leads to contentment. I invite you to stand so I can pray for you this week. Gracious Heavenly God, we, uh, we need to move into a time of confession right now to, to offer to you all the different ways that we have looked for happiness, for deep satisfaction, for contentment in all of the wrong places. Lord, help us to get off from this uh, plenty and want spectrum and to wherever we are, find you here with us. By your Holy Spirit, Lord, we invite you into this week to give us uh, the wisdom, to give us the insight to look to your cross again and again and again and find you there, suffering the weight of our sins. It's in your name we pray, risen Lord, amen.